ICU Rounds is a production of the Society of Critical Care Medicine. Welcome back to Surgical IC Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. Today I want to talk about something we discuss frequently in rounds in the intensive care unit, and that is what exactly is a colloid. I hear that term getting thrown around a lot, and it seems a lot of times as we're throwing that term around, we don't have a real good understanding of it. I like to think that a lot of what we do in the intensive care unit, uh, at least the biology and the chemistry, is really strongly founded on what I learned in, in high school science. Uh, there doesn't seem to be, you know, I, I really am in the opinion that a lot of the care decision, the science, isn't that highbrow. It's very basic elementary science. And one of the first things I learned in my ninth grade biology class was the concept of osmosis. And osmosis was defined then at that point in time is the movement of water across a semi-permeable, across a semi-permeable membrane, easy for me to say. Well, we like to say that osmosis is the movement of water through a semi-permeable membrane from an area of high concentration of solute, so low concentration of solute, into a region of higher concentration of solute, basically bringing those concentrations on either side of that membrane into equilibrium. Now, often when we're talking about the use of intravenous fluids, the topic of using a colloid will come up. And whether a colloid is a good thing or a bad thing isn't going to be really the focus of this particular podcast, but I do want to focus on is what really is a colloid. And perhaps the most commonly used colloid that we discuss about in an intensive care unit is albumin. And albumin comes in uh, two different concentrations, typically in the United States. It comes in a 5% concentration, and it comes in a 25% concentration. What we like to say is that by giving albumin that it is a colloid, and by doing so, it exerts an osmotic pressure. Uh, it's unable to actually go uh, into um, the, uh, the extravascular space, and by, does that, by doing that, it exerts an osmotic pressure and tends to try to pull water into the circulatory system. And like I said, albumin is typically the protein that we're thinking about, and albumin's a albumin is a large plasma protein, and by being large, it's really unable to um, cross the capillary membranes and it exerts that osmotic pressure in the interior of the capillaries and, and the intent then is that it reduces the likelihood the fluid will leak out and in other situations it will hopefully pull fluid into the intravascular space and in conditions uh, such as if we have proteinuria or malnutrition uh, or trauma, burns, uh, we, lo we can lose plasma, uh, we can lose albumin, and people will administer albumin. We'll go into what are those different types of albumin and what do they do. One of the things that just drive me absolutely crazy, though, is when I hear people say, give blood, blood is a colloid. Well, let's think about what a colloid is for a second. We've already mentioned that perhaps the most commonly used or the commonly discussed colloid, we're talking about critical illness, is that of albumin. Albumin's a pretty nice and generic protein, doesn't really hurt anybody. It's the main protein of plasma, and it binds things like water and different electrolytes, such as calcium, potassium, binds things like fatty acids and medications, um, uh, binds things like thyroxin and, and cortisol. 
but its main function, albumin's main function, is really to establish and maintain the colloidic, uh, the colloid oncotic pressure, osmotic pressure of blood. And I don't think that anybody would dispute that albumin is the protein that's responsible for most of that um, colloid, colloid osmotic pressure of the blood. Then I would ask you, well, what is a normal albumin? Um, what's an albumin for a typical adult out walking around? And we would say that, you know, for a, a typical adult, an albumin could range anywhere from three and a half to five. But let's go back to this notion that people talk about that give blood that it's a colloid. Well, there's other proteins that are involved in blood, and perhaps the one that the protein that we think of about most when we associate with blood is hemoglobin. Hemoglobin, a normal hemoglobin concentration in a patient that's up walking around not critically ill, might be 14 grams per deciliter. How is it that if blood is a colloid, that the protein that exerts the greatest colloid osmotic pressure in, in plasma is albumin, that has basically a um, concentration of about a third of what hemoglobin is, being about, you know, three and a half to five grams per deciliter. How is that possible? What's going on there? Perhaps it's possible that blood is not a colloid. And that's what we're going to sit here and talk about for a little bit. Because if we go back to this idea of what osmosis is, we said it's the movement of particles, a movement of a... a um, uh, solvent molecules through a semi-permeable membrane. In order for something to be a solvent, it's what? It has to be in solution. So when we really want to think about a, a daily example of what a colloid might be, we're going to talk about things like albumin and things like Hespan in the intensive care unit. But at home, a typical colloid is something like milk. And if you open your, your refrigerator, you look at your carton of milk, and you come back 8 or 12 hours from now, it's going to look still pretty much like the carton of milk that you left there 8 or 12 hours ago. But for instance, let's take a tube of blood, a tube of whole blood, and uh, put it in a, a, a tube and tape it to the wall of the intensive care unit. Now, obviously, we can't do this nowadays because of all the regulatory issues. We used to do this in the old days. When we'd be able to make rounds and you came back and you looked at that test tube taped to the door of the intensive care unit, what would you see? And what you see is a layering effect, uh, the hematocrit effect uh, of what you see with whole blood. On the bottom, you see a very dark maroon uh, color. And at, the, and at the top of the test tube, you see um, amber, uh, almost clear fluid. And what's happened is the blood is separated out by itself. You can also do it in a, a centrifuge. The red blood cells from the plasma. Well, where does the hemoglobin reside? The hemoglobin resides inside the red blood cell. It's actually inside the membrane. So hemoglobin by itself is not in solution. In fact, hemoglobin in solution is actually reasonably nephrotoxic. This is what we see the problems with things like myoglobinuria and people who've had hemolysis, that hemoglobin is a nephrotoxin. So blood as a colloid is not an accurate statement. If you want to say plasma is a colloid, that would be, okay, that's an accurate statement because in plasma we have serum proteins like albumin and coagulation factors and the like, and those factors are in solution. However, Blood is a suspension. 
and as a suspension, it doesn't have osmotic pressure, and therefore it cannot exert an osmotic force to be used as the idea of added as a colloid. Well, all of this is relevant when you start thinking about the movement of fluid out of the vascular space into the extravascular space, or move it blunt back. And these get really into the things of the Starling forces. You remember this from, from physiology, probably certainly not in high school, but in college and perhaps certainly in medical school. But the, the idea of fluid moving in and out of the vascular space is really regulated by a couple of different factors. One is what is the blood pressure? If you imagine that a blood vessel is not a conduit like a piece of PVC piping, it is a very complex biological system where you've got the endothelial cells and at the endothelial cells they interdigitate, but there is the ability of fluid to move out of the vascular space uh, through the wall of the capillaries. And a lot of this is regulated by the hydrostatic pressure, i.e. the blood pressure inside that capillary. The greater the pressure, the greater the force pushing the fluid, squeezing it out through the pores and the interdigitations of the capillaries. This is hydrostatic pressure. What is some of the force that is helping that fluid stay intravascular is the colloid oncotic pressure. And that is, again, using the concept of osmosis, is that as long as we have particles there in solution, water through osmosis will want to move towards those particles and try to dilute them. The more particles we have, the more we're able to attract water. Now, again, hemoglobin in a membrane of the red blood cell doesn't exert that osmotic pressure, but something like albumin does. And it's the balance of the hydrostatic force with the cold oncotic pressure helps us regulate the movement of fluid in and out of the vascular space. Now, if you remember things like, um, you know, the uh, Starling's forces, there is something called the reflection coefficient and the filtration coefficient. And the reflection coefficient represents the permeability of the membrane to macromolecules. Basically, uh, are the big molecules such as albumin, are they hitting that and bouncing back? Uh, the filtration coefficient is the conductance or the ease which water or small molecules can actually cross that membrane. So those are the other two factors that are in play here when we're looking at the balance of hydrostatic pressure and colloidocotic pressure. Now, as we mentioned, albumin, a colloid, is the principal contributor to colloidocotic pressure. And I think we've described reasonably well, well why albumin is and hemoglobin isn't. Because by now, we all know blood itself, whole blood, if you want to be precise, is not a colloid. Now, albion itself is responsible for about 80% of the plasma's colloidocotic pressure. There are other proteins that are present. We talked about things like immunoglobulin, fibrinogen, and other proteins perhaps that are used uh, in inflammation as well as the coagulation uh, factors that are found in plasma. This is what's in the amber fluid of that test tube that we uh, taped to the door. And we call that amber fluid plasma. Now, if albumin is responsible for 80% of the colloidocotic pressure, how we lose albumin or how we make albumin is certainly relevant in what we maintain as that colloidocotic pressure. And um, there are medical conditions that we mentioned, for instance, that you can lose albumin. And there are certain situations where um, we see an increase in the production of albumin. Uh, albumin synthesis is not really uh, understood well. It's made in hepatocytes and its decrease in uh, its uh, production in states of inadequate uh, nutritional status, uh, poor uh, amino acids. Um, um, it's uh, not known as uh, albumin is known as a negative acute phase reactant. And what that really means is that synthesis is suppressed in response to inflammation. 
Well, the colon encotic pressure of someone who is normal out walking about is about 23. Uh, however, the colon encotic pressure of somebody who's critically ill drops down to about 18. So, you know, this is, a, I'm sorry, and units for that is roughly millimeters of mercury. So when we give somebody albumin, what is the impact of that? Well, when you give somebody 5% albumin, you're looking at the colonic pressure of about 20. Uh, so you can see that when we're giving somebody 5% albumin because we're trying to pull fluid into the intravascular space, that's just not physiologically very relevant uh, because their osmotic pressure is going to be really between 18 and 23, and the osmotic pressure of 5% albumin is 20 millimeters of mercury. So you don't have that pull effect. The reason why you're giving albumin in that circumstance is that it's going to stay intravascularly longer. We've done other podcasts about this, but you've heard the rule of, of three to one that if I give somebody a liter of crystalloid at the end of an hour, only a third of it remains intravascular. I think that's normal when you're looking at people who are relatively not sick, but people who are sick, that rule is really a four to one. That After one hour, a liter fluid, only about 250 cc stays intravascular. However, by giving albumin, and again, if you read the critics on the use of albumin, they'll tell you that albumin is rapidly hydrolyzed to its component amino acids. That doesn't take place in an hour. It does happen, but if you give somebody a liter of, of albumin, about 900 cc's of it's going to stay intravascular at the end of an hour. But you're not going to have a pull effect. Now, when you give 25% um, albumin, what you're looking at there is that actually does have a hyper-oncotic effect. Um, um, I'm sorry, at the 25% albumin, it actually has um, a osmotic pressure of 100 so what you're actually doing is rather than having a 100% volume expansion, you're actually going to have it increase. So if I give somebody 100 cc's of 25% uh, albumin, I'm actually going to increase the volume expansion 500%. So I will increase their intravascular volume by 500 mLs by giving them 100 mLs of the 25% albumin. And in reality, what happens is the, uh, with the 5% albumin, you're expanding it 100%. Now, the duration of that volume expansion is measured in hours, unlike what we talked about with crystalloids. If you give somebody either 5 or 25% albumin, that duration of the volume expansion is going to last from 12 to 24 hours. Now, there are different types of starches that we use. Probably the most common is uh, dextran, excellent dextran, uh, uh, hespan, which is head of starch. And head of starch has an osmolality of 300. Okay, so it's isoosmolar, has a molecular weight of about 400 uh, kilodaltons, and it has an osmotic pressure of 30. Okay, now 30 is greater than 20, which you see in your 5% albumin, and 30 is actually greater than both what you see in critical illness and normal. So actually, Hespan is actually more of a, more, has more colloid osmotic pressure than the 5% albumin. It increases your volume expansion by 100% because, again, it's not acting like a crystalloid. And that duration of that volume expansion uh, will last pretty much between 8 and 36 hours. Uh, and that depends, too, if the patient has a spleen or not. Now, when we look at crystalloids, again, crystalloids have an osmo osmolality of 250 to 310 cc's. Typically, we're talking about normal, normal saline and lactate ringers. The volume expansion percent is only 25%. 
this gets into that one to four. If I give somebody a liter of saline or give somebody a liter of lactated ringers, I'm only going to increase their volume expansion by roughly 250 cc's. And the duration of that volume expansion is uh, really about a half an hour to max about four hours. And so why do I want to go all over this is because I want to, number one, define what is a colloid. And a colloid, we mentioned, are things with large proteins that exert an osmotic pressure inside the intravascular space based on Starling's forces. Number two, I want to dispel the notion that blood is a colloid. If you want to say plasma is a colloid, I'm okay with that. Blood is not a colloid. Why is blood not a colloid? Because hemoglobin, the molecule hemoglobin, is wrapped in a cellular membrane. It is not in solution. It is a suspension. Albumin is the protein that is in the plasma that exerts the greatest osmotic pressure. 5% albumin, if you're giving that to pool fluid back into the intravascular space, that's not physiologically correct. And we've explained to you why it's not physiologically correct, because albumin has an osmotic pressure of roughly 20 which is within the range of what a person's osmotic pressure typically is. The reason why we give 5% albumin is that it results in 100% volume expansion and it has a duration of 12 or 24 hours. If you like this notion of pulling fluid into the vascular space, then what you need is give something that is hyper-osmolar, uh, and that would be 25% albumin. That, again, Osmotic pressure of 100 millimeters of mercury improves volume expansion by 500%. And we talked about HESPAN and so forth. So I wanted to discuss a little bit about those uh, and, and how we use them. We could talk about third space fluids. I think that's probably a discussion for another day. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.